key is, is to not let biases become something that becomes unchecked in the educational process, because that's when systemic barriers come into play. I have sort of a weird philosophy around businesses in that if we're doing our job right, we will have to reinvent ourselves because we have created a sustainable solution within our customers that doesn't necessarily require us to be who we are 10 years from now. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Howard Bell. Howard is the CEO of ABLE. ABLE is an education software company that is aiming to improve education equity across districts. ABLE focuses on understanding student access and enrollment in courses and the distribution of teacher load through a master schedule. Howard previously held leadership positions in the education sector, including those at Hobson's, Study Group, Kaplan, and Scholastic. Welcome, Howard. It's so great to have you. Great to be here. Welcome. Thank you. So let's dive in. I'd love to start by understanding your personal background. You grew up as the youngest of six, and you've spoken about attending your mother's community college classes as a child. What were some of the early influences that piqued your interest in education? Well, you're you're speaking to one that was very much so it, right? And so my mother dropped out of school to have my oldest brother, and she was uh, doing quite well. She was an honor student. But obviously, in those days, if you decided to go the pregnancy route, if you will, you had to, to leave school. And so she decided after I was born that she wanted to go back and pursue a career in nursing, which was great, obviously. But unfortunately, the journey included a real need for childcare, which uh, we couldn't afford. She was still determined to make this work somehow, and so she took me to class. So I was only in the sixth and seventh grade, but I sat through biology, chemistry, and math classes. The math instructor even graded my homework and tests. So I could, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, if you can believe that. I can even remember sitting at the kitchen table with my mother completing homework together. Long story short is we both graduated the same year and had a joint party, me from high school her from a community college. But weirdly enough, you know, it taught me a, a few things. One is how education can create opportunities for people to change the pathway in their lives, as it did for my mother. The real feasibility and opportunity for increasing the academic rigor for young students. You know, I'm sitting sixth and seventh grade, but, you know, I knew the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> you know, how many people knew that at that young an age? And so it, it speaks to whether or not we can create more rigor for students earlier in their process. And then obviously just the whole experience of being in school with adults and learning all these things so early really impacted my academic trajectory because I showed up in high school taking geometry with upperclassmen, which in the grand scheme of academic achievement means a lot in terms of what you'll be able to achieve, not just in high school, but in post-secondary experiences as well. So all of that really influenced me educationally when it came to that early experience. 
you have multiple degrees yourself. You have an MBA, you have a JD, and you have a bachelor's in electrical engineering. Can you tell us kind of what brought you to where you are now running ABLE? You're right. I, I did, I think, a big spark of education was lit when I went through those experiences, both with my mother, but obviously all in high school after that. But there were some things that also left an impression on me, how unprepared I was in terms of institutional know-how when I got to my first college and didn't know what a bursar was, didn't know that I needed to have an, a financial aid package. There was just no institutional know-how um, coming through my experiences. And one of the other realities was that even though I came into my high school with 800 students as a freshman, we lost more than 200 students along the way, having a graduating class that was less than 600. And so it, it, it ingrained in my brain that there was a real need to create a different experience and journey for students along this continuum of you know, elementary, middle school, high school, and college. And so I originally got involved in this whole thing, believe it or not, because as I was an engineer, as I was a lawyer, and during those times, I actually was part-time teaching and doing programs at, at high schools or with students that were in college as tutors and things of that nature. And I realized that it was just time to pivot towards full-time educational work and not doing it part-time because that's where I found my joy. And I realized that these experiences I had early on, both in, in you know, as the stories I was telling about my mother, but also in college, that there was a real opportunity there and gap to help students be better prepared for whatever post-secondary journey that they wanted to go on and helping them to make sure they were successful in that journey. And so I turned to ABLE because it became very clear to me very early on when I got to speak to Adam Pisoni, who was the founder of this, of this organization, we were looking at an opportunity to create an equitable experience for students in K-12 to ensure that they were all ready to make an informed choice on whatever thing they wanted to do after high school, whether it was a career or whether it was college, that we could be there to help with that choice very early on and impact them in ways that would sustain a real social movement of economic mobility for folks who typically get hit with a variety of challenges along the way. So when did ABLE start and when did you get involved? So ABLE started about five years ago. It uh, started out as a company that was going to focus on the master schedule. For those who don't appreciate what the master schedule is, it's, uh, it's a tool that's used to really define what courses students will get access to, in what order, what teachers will be providing that instruction. All of that gets baked into this thing called a master schedule, which if not used strategically, can just be a tool for sorting students and not actually supporting them. I came on board uh, nine months ago in April, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> Good time. Uh, which probably speaks to my sanity. It was at a time when I knew I wanted to transition from having focused for 10 plus years in higher ed to now looking at the inputs into higher ed, which was obviously K through 12. So I came up with it. You joined because there's there, there are no scheduling challenges with COVID, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, right? So you would expect that there would be uh, all kinds of challenges with scheduling as folks are figuring out, well, 
am I working? Am I going to do my work from home or am I going to do my work at school? How am I going to work from home if my, my brothers and sisters are also home or I don't have an, actually an isolated space to do that? How am I going to get food if I'm typically going to, to school to get, you know, free and reduced lunch, breakfast, and, you know, free and reduced lunch, which could be breakfast and lunch? How, how am I going to make all of that work? Not to mention, am I going to have access to a computer? Am I going to have bandwidth? I can go on. And how are we going to schedule all that, right? And so that became very much so a challenge for many schools to figure out how they were going to make that work. And it has not had the type of success that I think people would like to hear it has, unfortunately, because it absolutely overly impacts populations of students that are at risk, whereas our more wealthy students can navigate that much more easily. I also felt unprepared for, for college. So that, that, that really stood out to me. And I, I have a mother who worked in New York City public schools, and I know a little bit of kind of the inside of the scheduling. If you could, maybe just kind of let's make this a little bit more concrete. Is there an mm-hmm. example that you can share of your solution in action? Or maybe tell us about, you know, maybe who who are your typical clients? Who are the typical beneficiaries of your work as well? Sure. So if you think about what master scheduling does, in essence, it's sort of a big puzzle where you have students at sort of the input of the puzzle requesting classes, saying, these are the classes I want to take next year, whether they're incoming freshmen and they want to take you know, basic English, science and math, or, you know, whether they're a senior trying to figure out what courses they would want to take after having three years of experience. So there's that part of this puzzle. And, you know, if you're a high school, then you're doing that for four different cohorts, right? You've got freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Then you've got teachers who are there with specific specialties. They may have, you know, some sort of collective bargain agreement that says when they actually will begin teaching, how many breaks or support sessions they get in, you know, during the day. You've got then classrooms and availability. And you've got this sort of underarching set of requirements that a student will need to graduate will need to be eligible for college, will need to be to persist and actually graduate from college, as well as some things that might be there for careers. All of that's getting jumbled together to be able to say, here is where every student will sit during the successive periods throughout the day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for all our kids at this school. And then imagine a big district where they're doing that for all of their schools. That's sort of the puzzle. The unfortunate nature is, because of time, because of sort of the decentralized environment in which school districts work. You have a district and a leadership team there, very much so focusing on strategy and overall effectiveness. And you've got each of the individual schools working in their local communities, trying to almost autonomously, to some extent, create the best environment they can. And what we're doing is trying to connect both the strategy of the, of the district office and the tactical work that happens with the schools to help them understand that these typical processes of creating a master schedule leave some students behind or leaves them without access to the necessary courses and resources they need to succeed. An example might be, for example, just to make it very simple, students showing up knowing that they need to take two world languages in order to be qualified for college let's say they've already taken Latin and they're also in the band. And so in their final year, the band schedule is off from or conflicts with the second year of Latin 
And so the counselor may advise them, well, you just take Spanish. And then they apply to college and the college says you didn't take two years of the same language. Therefore, you're not eligible. That story is not atypical. And so what we're there to do is on one level to help to illustrate all the imbalances that are present in their schools and school system. So we'll literally show them which students are getting access to rigorous courses, courses that are necessary for college eligibility, for persistence. And we'll show it not just on average, but by the important individual student groups so that you can understand from an equity perspective, whether or not your students with disabilities, whether or not your um, ELL or English learning students, whether or not your students of different ethnicities are somehow being penalized by the decisions that have been typically made to do this sorting process. Once you understand that, you then have a baseline upon which you can now take action on the opportunities or gaps that you've witnessed in looking at our, how that works. And we do that in our tool. Is that then a typical engagement for you would be like an analytics phase first, where you just sort of like process the existing schedule and spit it out? Or do you run a parallel scheduling process to the existing one? Or do you have to actually win the whole thing in order to get in there? Our theme, and we live by this understanding that we're there to operationalize equity. And so if all we do is come in and illustrate, and hopefully in most cases, which is actually is the case, inspire you to do something because you have seen the data, but we don't take you to our next steps, then we haven't actually accomplished our goal. We have three specific phases. We call the first phase assess, where we do what we're talking about. We look at the data, we help to illustrate and visualize the gaps and create a sense of urgency within that district and that school that these are some things we need to do something about. Then we go to bridge which is where we both prioritize a set, identify and prioritize a set of strategies and tactics to deal with what we observed when we were looking at students and seeing that they weren't having access or they weren't succeeding. So here's our set of tactics and strategies to address that. We prioritize them because, you know, like everything else, you don't have resources to do everything. So we prioritize them and then we create an action plan where we actually then understand what we're going to do in year one, year two, year three. We execute on the work. We actually have a tool that supplements the master scheduler where you can take all that information that typically goes into that master scheduler, put it in our tool, and it'll spit out a master schedule that will then take into consideration all the gaps, all the strategies, all the tactics, so that you can then create something that is much more equitable for the entirety of the student base to help ensure that they're not just going to get the courses they selected, but the right courses to ensure that they're career and college ready. And then the cycle says, let's go back to the beginning after taking the action and do it again. Let's assess. Let's see where we are now. Let's tweak the plan, double down on the things that are working, eliminate those things that are not, execute again until we get to the point where the school is actually able to systematically do this process without us. You know, our goal is to get out of the way, just to create capacity through training, which we do a lot of that in the bridge cycle as well. And then we are able to create the train-to-trainer models and get, get out of the way and let the school systematically ensure that they are investigating with a real sort of enthusiasm how the decisions they're making are impacting all students, students of color, and students with, you know, all the other attributes we were just talking about. That's really right in there in the sausage factory. It really is. I was going to say, thank you for elaborating on that, because I think it's just an area that I certainly didn't know about. It makes me think that in the education industry, 
there are likely other features that are creating inequities. Just being a CEO in this field, have you seen other areas for improvement? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when we think about equity and the things that need to happen, we focus on the master schedule because of it's it's sort of a hidden area. It's an area where folks don't typically turn. So when you're talking about equity in areas where people can have impact, you're usually having conversations about things like curriculum and, you know, what you can do to maybe make the curriculum more inclusive, more interesting to students who maybe don't just want to read the classics, for example. What can you do about instruction to ensure that the students are experiencing you know, an engaging environment of instruction? Are you looking at the makeup of your teachers to ensure that um, they're seeing a diverse group of teachers to experience just like the diverse group of people they'll see when they finally you know, go out into the real world and start working. Are your discipline activities inequitable? In other words, you know, do you see students of color, for example, African-American males, seeing much stronger and more stringent penalties for misconduct or absences than other students? And why is that? Your HR practices, how are you hiring? How are you retaining and, and also developing the folks within your, your, your institutions ensure that they're going to be excellent at teaching so that you don't look up, for example, and have only a very small subset of teachers that can teach some of your more rigorous courses, say, for example, calculus or AP physics. And so you can offer a more robust or extensive set of classes to the students who need that in order to be successful in college or career, just because you don't have an adequately tra uh, trained uh, staff of folks. So what are you doing to develop that? So the list goes on, frankly. what By focusing on the master schedule, we wanted to focus on a place where you know, it, it's, it's what we would call a systemic boundary. That was burden. the word I was just thinking. It's like there's nothing yes. more systemic than the scheduling process. Right, Absolutely. right. And so it's funny. So I was just, I've just been reading a book called uh, Biased by an author, Eberhardt. Eberhard, I'm going to tear up her name, but I'm pretty sure that's her name. Uh, she's a professor, I think, now at Stanford. And she talks about how bias is just sort of a natural attribute of a human being. How, you know, we sort things we see in life in order to be able to make fast and efficient and hopefully safe decisions about the things that we're going to encounter. Those biases are just natural. They're not going to go away. The key is, is to not let biases become something that becomes unchecked in the educational process, because that's when systemic barriers come into play. And so if you're already making a certain decision about a student's ability to learn based on a set of criteria that says if they don't have the following score in the previous class, or if they haven't gotten a written recommendation from the teacher, then they can't take geometry or they can't take algebra two. While there's no evidence to say that those policies that then became a part of your process because of your bias are actually effective in screening, you use them anyway because somewhere in your bias training, you think that's being effective. And so what we're saying is let's just test that regularly to ensure that bias that then becomes policy doesn't become a systemic barrier. Let's always look and investigate and see how the choices we're making in the scheduler impact these specific student groups. If we can just be, that becomes a part of our DNA and admit that biases will always exist. It's just not something we can, you know, just sort of do away with. We'll have a much more effective and impactful educational environment. Absolutely. I think we are all 
on this conversation, drawing very similar conclusions. And I love that you already told us what book is on your nightstand. Just for our listeners, it's Biased by Jennifer Aberhart, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Howard, let's get into our rapid fire questions. Can you name something that's giving you hope right now? So you asked me about one of my, uh, some of my clients and I didn't uh, give you a full answer uh, on that one, but you know, like we, I work with state of Rhode Island, state of Washington, many schools in the state of Washington. We've worked with DCPS. We've worked with Keller in Texas, worked with Round Rock, Denver public schools. But recently I've been doing a lot of work with LAUSD. And what I have found to be really, that really gives me hope is that we've had opportunities to meet with these district leaders and school leaders on the weekend. And it's just, it was something very interestingly uh, reassuring about the dedication of district and school leaders to work on their weekends. And people don't, I think, think that their job sort of stops when the students leave the building, but that these folks take this so seriously and understand the complexity of it and the need to look at things from eighth grade, middle school, all the way through high school, as well as then seeing how the students are impacted in college. I have hope in the fact that people are paying attention to the complexity of this issue, of this opportunity and what needs to happen in education. It has made me super hopeful that we will get this accomplished. You obviously need a lot of energy to get through these engagements and process these master schedules. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? To get yourself started, coffee, tea, or caffeine free? <laughs> caffeine free. <laughs> caffeine free, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I am a, uh, I'm a fruit juice lover. Smoothies, that's my, those are my go to beverages. <laughs> Impressive. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> what is one trend you are watching in your industry? One. <laughs> that's a killer question. You know, in our industry, it has been. Look, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And so it is very much so important for us to pay attention to the trends that COVID-19 are showing in terms of the impact that this unfortunate time has had on students that are typically underestimated or don't have the means to provide the types of environments and resources they need. So I've been paying a lot of attention to any reports I can come up with that help to frame or um, adequately describe um, exactly how bad this time has been so that we can better prepare ourselves to partner with these district and school leaders on how to close that gap. Because it is very clear that the gap that we were already illustrating was there before this pandemic. And we have no reason to believe that it did anything but get worse. So just as you're keeping up with that trend and others, what is your favorite resource for staying up to date on current events, whether it's a podcast or a website or a newsletter? I'll answer your question, but I will uh, caveat it. So I think the best places for me to look are our more established publications. So I'm big on things like the Washington Post and the New York Times some of the higher learning publications. I, I read, I try to read them all. Uh, even some stuff that comes out by McKinsey, I pay attention to. But I'm also a believer in answering your question that all that stuff is a little dated because it's always after the fact. And so my biggest resource is actually talking to the people who are working with the students in the districts and the schools every day. Those are the 
that's my go-to. Those are the people who I ask questions of who can give me really great answers on what's going on in the school district. How do you unwind after working with all your stakeholders and, and thinking through complex problems? Most people know in my family, I am a, uh, I'm a movie junkie. This has been sort of the toughest period because I can't go to the movie theater, but it hasn't stopped me from subscribing to every paid, every paid resource I could to watch, you know, movies. So I've been watching a lot of the same stuff over and over again, just because, you know, there's not much you can do about that right now. But so I'm, I'm a movie. I unwind by watching movies. What's the best movie in history? Favorite movie of all time. Don't show my age. Um, <laughs> favorite movie of all time. So, you know, <laughs> Because I'm talking education, I'm trying to stay in that vein because I could very easily jump to Lord of the Rings or some of the Marvel ones like uh, Black Panther. But if I'm staying in education, I really, it's kind of funny to say, but I really like To Serve With Love with Sidney Poitier. I've never seen it. It's a corny old black and white of a teacher who tries to come into a school district in London and impact change. Pretty interesting. It's, It's old. But it's been it's been one of those that I'll always I'll always love. What was the name of it again? To serve with love. To serve with love. Okay. I want to turn back to Abel and ask just a couple questions. Do you face any challenges when it comes to integrating impact and financial returns in your business? Part of the reason why I think we'll be less impacted by that is because we tried to create a solution model that fits a business model. I know that sounds a little crazy, but when I describe assess, bridge, and launch, which by the way, I don't know if you caught, but that actually spells out ABLE as an acronym. It was because it actually very much so more easily resembles how businesses need to operate. Businesses need to be able to have multiple entry points. It can't just sort of be like, you know, retail markets where they do all their work at one point of the year and then they have, you know, a very big downtime. So assess, bridge, and launch helps to create multiple entry points for our working with partners that allows the business to sustain because some partners we can be working on assess, some we could be working on bridge and others we could be working on launch at different points in the business that helps to create, you know, less of that sort of up and down that businesses go through in cycles when they're very busy and then they're not. And so that's very much so intentional in terms of our work was to create something that makes the business viable as well as creating something that actually can sustainably impact our customers and school district leaders as we do the work. You alluded to kind of the company's future. Where do you see the vision for ABLE in the next decade? I have sort of a weird philosophy around businesses in that if we're doing our job right, we will have to reinvent ourselves because we have created a sustainable solution within our customers that doesn't necessarily require us to be who we are 10 years from now. So a little bit of the answer to your question is not sure, but I am positive that if we have done our work correctly, this cycle that we're talking about, our assess, bridge, and launch cycle will become the systematic process that all of our schools use. We will have created the capacity for them to do that through the training we have done, and we will have given them the tool to use such that our need changes. And so today, it's all about educating people on the master schedule. It's all about helping them appreciate and focus on equity. It's all about helping them identify the problems, figure out a plan, 
execute using the tool. 10 years from now, they won't need us for the educational part. They'll understand it. They'll have built their own capacity. They can train their other people as they bring them in. And so our goal 10 years from now will be one to celebrate the fact that we created that capacity and that systematic approach to addressing equity in all of our school systems. That will be one really big opportunity for us to celebrate and appreciate that we help do that. And then from there, the idea is to think to ourselves, what do we do now? And there's, there's always something new. We will have certainly have created some intensely powerful partnerships. We will have been able to observe rich amounts of student data as we better understand, you know, how students perform both in middle school, high school, and then post-secondarily. So, you know, there may be additional insights that come to bear at that time. And, you know, we'll be looking forward to help solve those problems when they come. I think that's fascinating. And thank you for sharing your commitment to your mission in your response to that question. You know, a lot of leaders would not be okay with completely kind of solving for the problem that their solution is a part of. But I I really loved your response and thank you so much. With that, I would love to thank you for joining us in this conversation. It's been a pleasure to learn more about ABLE, to learn more about you and what you care about. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. I learned so much today. Thank you for shedding so much light to me and to our listeners about the importance of that sort of systemic you know, scheduling process. And I think it's making a huge difference out there. Way to go. Thanks, you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Howard. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.